because it is by their own lives that many of them shed their blood that you and I could be here and stand in liberty to worship our God this morning. Would you give them another great big hand of appreciation? Hallelujah. You know, this morning, that first song that they sung, I like what it says, that we stand in all of him. You know, the Lord just, he is beyond description. He is beyond us having the words and our vocabulary to describe him. We just stand in all of him. He's an awesome God. But in the next thing that that song said is that we owe him everything. And I want to ask you a question this morning. Do you really think that you owe him everything? And if you do think that you owe him everything, are you giving him everything? Because in this morning's message, I've been really challenged by the Lord. And I have all week kind of just pined over this sermon. I, was, I had a sermon that was kind of building in my mind of how I wanted to come. And I thought it would really edify you and build you up. Because I love lifting up the saints and encouraging the saints. And even though this sermon's got an element of encouragement, it's got a warning. And sometimes that when we preach, you got to find out, is it the element of encouragement that God's trying to give it to me, or is it the element of warning? And there's a warning in this passage of Scripture that I'm going to be doing today. If you have your Bibles, I want you to turn with me to the book of Matthew chapter 8, starting with verse 5. And um, if you can remain seated for the word. You've been up and down a lot today. Matthew chapter, five, uh, eight, chap, Matthew chapter 8, verse 5. And when Jesus was entered into Capernaum, there came unto him a centurion beseeching him and saying, Lord, my servant lieth homesick of the palsy, grievously tormented. That Jesus saith unto him, I will come and I will heal him. The centurion answered and said, Lord, I am not worthy that thou shouldest come under my roof, but just speak the word only and my servant shall be healed. For I am a man of under authority, having soldiers under me. And I say unto this man, go, and he goeth. I say unto another, come, and he cometh. And to my servant, do this, and he does it. And when Jesus heard it, he marveled and said unto them that followed, Verily I say unto you, I have not found so great a faith, no, not in Israel. And I say unto you that many shall come from the east and the west and shall sit down with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. But the children of the kingdom shall be cast out into outer darkness, and there shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And Jesus said unto the centurion, Go thy way, and thou hast believed, so it be done unto thee. And his servant was healed in the very selfsame hour." I'm going to ask Brother uh, Crutchfield, would you, would you ask the Lord's blessing on the word, please? Amen. Now, prior to our text, we see that Jesus had just come off of the mount where he delivered a sermon to the multitudes. And the famous sermon that he delivered, we all know, and it's called the Sermon on the Mount where he gave all of the Beatitudes and things of that nature. And I know that many times we preachers, we are accused of preaching everything from Genesis to Revelation in a given sermon. And I know that sometimes we can get long because of the passion that lies within us. However, the reason for that is that because we are a disciple of Jesus Christ. 
Because Jesus' one Sermon on the Mount was three chapters long, dealing with a variety of topics, and it lasted an all day, it lasted all day from morning to evening. His one sermon was a one full day event. Have you ever thought about that? And what is so amazing is when Jesus finished his sermon, the Bible says in the book of uh, Matthew, verse 28 of our text, it says, and it came to pass when Jesus had ended these sayings, the people were astonished at his doctrine. That not only did Jesus preach all day long from the morning all the way to the giving of the ending of the going down of the sun, but these people remain with him. These people were very self-disciplined and attentive to Jesus. They sat all day long hearing him expound on kingdom principles. They were hungry to know truth. They were hungry to know him. And their attention span was tempered and they took full control of their minds to adhere to the word of God. In today's society, they say that the average attention span of a child is about seven minutes long. But what is really scary is that they said that now the attention span of believers in American culture has dropped down to about 15 minutes. That the longest that anybody can really discipline their mind to pay attention is about 15 minutes long by a lot of our adults. So in order to accommodate today's culture, we at the church, we as pastors across America have learned how to shorten messages with power-packed phrases. I've not been accused of that, but many do. Instead of the culture reigning in their thoughts and bringing them into captivity to the obedience of Christ, the church enables them in their slothfulness by giving them entertaining sermons that appeal to cultural correctness. And the breeding grounds for miracles that happen in one to three week revivals years ago, I remember the old timers when I was a young boy would say this. Brother Richardson told me, he said, you know, some of the greatest revivals we've ever had was in that third week. He said, because it took two weeks to wear down the enemy. He said, the first two weeks you battled. And he said, when you finally broke through and wore that enemy down, he said, I want to tell you, you had some explosions that took place. How many of you are of the age that you can remember one to two to three week revivals? Raise your hand. Of course, the older group understand that, but the younger group does not understand that because these revivals are coming to church every single Sunday morning through a Friday night. They think it is unrelevant and that it is really not necessary. They think that, you know, that's just not necessary and it's not really appealing to today's culture. And yet the problem of it is church attendance used to be a minimum of three hours for each service and there were three services a minimum a week, not, not counting an added prayer time of about another hour to two every week on a Thursday or a Saturday night, not counting as a church service. And the reason why that each of these services lasted two to three hours is because they were attentive to the word of God and the people wanted to have a move of the Holy Spirit and they were hungry. And the Bible says, blessed are those that hunger and thirst after righteousness for they shall be filled. But it has now come to the majority of the churches having one service a week and is on a Sunday morning and they want it to last about an hour. So across America, we have accommodated their request. And the problem of it is, is after we've accommodated the request, now they are screaming for less, even more, less time in a church service. An hour is too long. While the Bible tells us in Hebrews chapter 10 verse 25 that we should gather the more as we see the second return of Jesus Christ approaching because Hebrews 10 and 25 says not to forsake the assemblies of ourselves together as the 
manner of some is, but exhorting one another, and so much more as you see the day approaching. Not to gather into the house of God, not to see the importance of it, not to see the unnecessary of it, and not coming to regular services is a direct disobedience to the word of God. And sometimes we think our culture says, well, we know better. You know, we don't have to have that. That's unnecessary. Not according to scripture. And there's something inside of me that just is making me want to just preach. Just put out everything else and say, I'm just going to preach the word of God. We want such an entertainment in our services nowadays that we fail to stop and to listen to hear the word of God. If we ever get to the place where we lose attendance because our services go too long, then I'm going to cut out everything else, but I will not cut out the preaching of the word of God. Because I want to tell you, it's the most important thing that we do right here in this house. Can I have an amen? We've got to have a word. Man should not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of God. Today's Christian is overcome by the cares of life. We have no time. We're overwhelmed by busyness. We're preoccupied by events. We're overtaken by pressures. And we're a secular living society that has failed to redeem our time and put the kingdom of God first. And the consequences is that we do not see the miraculous. We do not see the miracles that was manifested to people to the people whose faith superseded culture. The Bible says that when Jesus came down from off of the mount, the multitudes follow him. They could not get enough of him. He was their center of attention. He was their first priority. They did really understand that song that we sung this morning. They stood in all of him, but they realized they owed him everything. And when the people of God lose him as their priority, they lose the power of God in their midst. Immediately as Christ came down from off of this mount with the multitude, we see that there came a leper worshiping him, and he cries out and he says, Lord, if thou wouldest, thou couldst make me clean. And the Bible says that Jesus put forth his hand, he touched him, and he says, I will be thou clean. And the Bible says, and immediately his leprosy was cleansed. And then we come to our text where Jesus goes into Capernaum. Here we see Jesus entered into Capernaum, and there came unto him a centurion beseeching him. And notice that it was the leper that came running to Jesus Christ when they come off the mount. And now as they enter into Capernaum, it's the centurion that's come running to him and beseeching him. There is a draw of the spirit when there is a movement of faith operating in the land. Did you hear that? This is very important because we as the people of God have to live by faith. And the, I want to say it again. There is a draw of the spirit where there is a movement of faith operating in the land. The multitude was engaged. It was moving in faith after being with Jesus for a full day of teaching and discipleship. We know that faith was there because of what Romans 10 and 17 says. Faith cometh by hearing and by hearing the word of God. Faith come off of that mountain that day and it caused an atmosphere of excitement. It literally changed the atmosphere and caused it to be charged with expectation and expectation and power. There was a movement of faith. Faith was on the move and it was affecting everything around it. If the church world would just engage in making Jesus Christ our first priority, we would see lepers and sinners come running and worshiping God and we would see lepers and sinners being, being cleansed of their leprosy. Wouldn't it be a marvelous thing that every service that we have here at the palace because of the element of faith that is being, uh, being manifested here through our lives, that it would draw people and as soon as they came into the door, they couldn't help themselves. They just ran to an altar and just started worshiping and magnifying God. I'm here to tell you that God wants to set such precedents in our church that when people 
people walk through that door, if they're sinners, they're being automatically drawn by the Holy Spirit and by the power of Almighty God, by the faith that is manifested in this building. When you get faith arising and you get faith to moving and you set an atmosphere of faith, I want to tell you, you can expect mighty and great things to happen. How many is going to start believing for God not only to come and visit us, but have a holy, holy dwelling, a, a, a holy inhabitation right here in this place to where our faith is connecting with him and he honors that faith by drawing all men into him. How many is ready for that kind of a move? Well, then get ready. Obey the Lord here this morning then. The void of the Spirit is seen in the lack of conversions, but it's due to the church not operating in faith, which is caused by the lack of them making Jesus their priority. It is so important for the community of faith not only to establish a realm of faith by word, but it's vitally important for them to create an atmosphere of faith by their actions and by their deeds in order to create the breeding grounds for the miraculous to happen. I am so hungry to see God's presence manifested in such strong ways. I am tired of our people being sick and afflicted and diseased and we war and we fight. It's time that a leper can come in and say, if you will, you can make me clean. Well, I will be thou clean. It's time to see that. Can I have an amen? It's time to see that the, the, the war of the spirit that we have to fight for people's healings ought to be vanished away. Let, let God arise and his enemies be scattered. And let faith arise and let faith begin to get in the hearts of his people and we'll see the miraculous things happen. But faith will never arise where Jesus is not set up on the throne as Lord and become the priority of the church. Can I have an amen? If you want Jesus to be the priority of your life, would you just lift your hand and invite him in this morning? Amen? Amen. But you see, here comes the centurion, and remember who a centurion was. A centurion was an officer of the army of ancient Rome. Centurions got their name because they commanded a hundred men or more. And even though a centurion was appointed by the Senate or by an emperor or elected by his comrades, yet most of them were enlisted men that were promoted to the rank of a centurion after being in the army for at least 15 to 20 years. So this man, this means that this man was in the deep state of the Roman army. He was already made a career in his life to be a soldier. He committed himself to the Roman government just like these men were committed to the United States Army, Navy, Marines and so on this morning. For the centurion to come to Jesus, it took great courage. He risked his whole career and could have been brought up on charges of being a traitor. He was defiling his own Roman government. He could have been faced with treason charges, but nevertheless he comes to Jesus, he's concerned about one of his servants who was grievously tormented by a palsy. Now let me just stop right here and say, isn't it unusual for someone to put their whole career, uh, their whole career and their whole life in jeopardy over the care of somebody else? He's not even coming to Jesus for himself. He's coming to Jesus for somebody else. He's willing to risk it all that he might be able to help somebody else. Let me ask you a question. Are you willing to risk everything that you got in order to be able to help or to save some other person? Are you willing to lose your influence or, or, or your, your status among the elite group at the, at, the, at the golf course or at the wherever you go in order to be able to be a Christian and stand up for Christian principles and stand up for somebody? This man was willing to lose everything that he had in order to help somebody else. Does that sound like someone we sung about this morning? Jesus risked everything that he had. He 
left heaven to come to earth so that us earthlies might be able to go to heaven someday. Can you give the Lord praise for what he's done for us? Can I have an amen? But here he says in verse six, the centurion says, Lord, my servant life, homesick of a palsy, grievously tormented. And then we see Jesus says in verse seven, I will come and heal him. Wasn't that some great words? Wouldn't it be that wonderful to us just to make a petition, say, Lord, so-and-so sick today, and the Lord said, well, I'll just come and heal him. Wow, what an invitation, but something very unusual and odd happens. This Roman centurion says something to him that's very unusual. Listen to what he says in verse eight and nine. The centurion answered and said, Lord, I'm not worthy that thou shouldest come under my roof, but speak the word only, and my servant shall be healed. For I am a man of under authority. I have soldiers under me. I say to a man, go, he goes. I tell a man, come, he comes. I tell a servant to do this, he does it. And the first thing that is so unusual is the centurion, this Roman soldier, this Gentile recognized Jesus' lordship. How do I know that? As a matter of fact, he addressed him and called him Lord both in verse six and both in verse eight. Look at verse six. And he said in verse six, Lord, my servant, lieth home sick. He called him Lord. Verse eight, Lord, I am not worthy that thou shouldest comest under my roof. Them are very important words, especially spoken from a satyrian soldier. Notice in verse eight, he not only called Jesus Lord, but he sensed his own unworthiness to have him visit his own home. He didn't look at him just as a teacher or as a rabbi. He recognized his deity. He recognized his sonship. He recognized Jesus' deity, that he was holy, and that he was the son of God that he said that he was. He also recognized his sovereignty when he understood Jesus' supreme power and authority to rule and to govern. He said, I'm a man under authority. I have all these soldiers under me. I tell one to go, he goes. I tell one to come, he comes. I tell one to do this, and he does it. And then he says in verse 8, I'm not worthy to have you to come to my roof. Just speak the word, and my servant shall be healed. This man recognized Jesus' power over sickness and over disease. He recognized that Jesus had power over the demonic realm of, of affliction and infirmity. He said, all you have to do is speak the word and whatever you speak, that's what's going to happen. He said, you just gotta speak the word and my servant shall be healed. This centurion seen that Jesus owns divine power and that he has full command and power over all creation and over all nature. Do we as a church really understand who it is that we're serving? Do we understand the power of Jesus Christ? Do we understand that truly he owns all power? All power is in his hand. And just speaking the word of Jesus, there's power in the name of Jesus. Demons flee at the speaking of his name. Can I have an amen? There's power, wonderful working power in the name of Jesus Christ. Do you believe that this morning? I ask you, do you believe that this morning? If you believe that this morning, stand up and give him the highest praise that you can give him. He's worthy of it. Hallelujah, yes. He said, whatever you speak, it shall be so. Do we really believe that in the body of Christ? He understood the commanding power of Jesus Christ. He understood what Jesus tried to teach his own disciples, his own believers in the book of Mark, chapter 11, verse 22 and 23, where Jesus says, have faith in God. Have faith in God. I want to speak to the palace of praise and say, have faith in God. 
And then he says in verse 23, For verily I say unto you that whosoever shall say unto this mountain, Be thou removed and cast into the sea, and shall not doubt in his heart, but shall believe the things in which he saith, he shall have those things in which he says. In other words, Jesus is saying there's so much power in the name of Jesus that I don't even have to be the one speaking it. You can speak it. And the power through the spoken name of Jesus through a believer has power to move mountains. It has power to, to, to uh, set people free. It has power to heal the sick. It has power to cast out demons. Can I have an amen? What has happened to that old time power and authority in the church? We have lost Jesus Christ as the priority of the church and as a result of it, we're void of the spirit and the power of the Holy Ghost. Can I have an amen? Now, I'm, I know I'm fixing to wrap this thing up. Just hang with me just for a moment. This man understood the authority of Jesus' command and that there's power in the name and the person of Jesus Christ. Notice the response of Jesus in verse 10. This blows me away. The wording of this scripture just, it just caught my attention. And when Jesus heard it, he marveled and said to them that followed, Verily I say unto you, I have not found so great a faith, no, not in all of Israel. The Bible says that Jesus marveled. Now look that word up. And Jesus, it meant that Jesus was surprised and blown away by this man's statement. Have you ever thought about what in the world could ever surprise Jesus? He knows all things. He's omnipresent, all power. My goodness, but the Bible says that he was surprised. He was blown away. Can you imagine that this man impressed Jesus Christ? How many would you like to impress Jesus Christ? Oh my, how can you impress God? This man impressed Jesus. I'd like to have a testimony. Kip Miller impressed God. Can you, would you like to have that testimony? Can you imagine that if the palace of praise would just come to the place in faith that we can impress God? Oh my goodness. That you and I could blow him away, that we could surprise him. Can you imagine that? He marveled. He was filled with wonder and astonishment at this man. Jesus had total admiration of this satyrian's faith. He recognized his faith in a notable degree. As a matter of fact, he implies that this kind of faith that is seen in him was not even seen among his very elect. Notice that. He said, I have not found so great a faith, no, not in all of Israel. This centurion's faith surpassed them all. His faith was even put above the very apostles. Can you imagine that? The very apostles, he said, I've looked over all of Israel and I've not seen anybody that had the faith that this man has had. Can you imagine having that kind of a testimony? I would like for God to come down and say, hey, I've searched the world over, but I've never seen anybody have faith like the palace of praise. Wouldn't that be a marvelous thing? And wherever there's faith that, get ready for the miraculous because they go hand in hand. Faith and miracles are tied together. I want to tell you, without faith, it's impossible to please God. He that cometh to God must believe that he is, and he's a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. What is faith? Faith is the substance of things hoped for and the evidences of things not seen. I don't see it, but I believe it. That's where we got to get to. We got to become to believe in the master that we know. But I want to tell you, folks, faith cannot be mustered up. Faith comes through relationship. It comes in knowing him. And when we put our heart upon him and establish a relationship where he's number one priority, faith is fed to you and it begins to embolden you to believe. Your faith is God-given. Can I have an amen? So we got to build up our faith. And we'll talk about that in just a moment. But notice that, isn't it odd that Jesus marveled at this man, but when describing the disciples' faith, 
Many times, many, many times throughout Scripture, it says he sighed. The Bible says in Mark 8 and 12 that Jesus sighed due to the unbelief and the lack of faith of his own Jewish people. And to sigh means to feel or display sorrow. It means to yearn, to pine, to lament, be weariness. It means to feel heavy or to be sad-hardened. It means to be tired of something. The centurion astonished Jesus, but the disciples grieved him. Have you ever thought about that? A centurion, a Gentile, astonished Jesus, but his own people literally grieved him. While Jesus many times rebuked his disciples for having little faith, just like he did later on in this chapter. This again is an object lesson. Later on he would show them about what kind of faith he was dealing with. His disciples were out in the boat. The storm came. The boat began to sink. He was asleep in the end of the boat. And they wake him up and say, Master, carest thou not that we perish? They're accusing him of not caring. And Jesus answers and says, Why are you so fearful, O you of little faith? This is to his own disciples. He said, why are you so fearful, oh, you of little faith? What are you and I concerned about? What are you and I fearful about this morning? Because I want to tell you, fear is not a faith. You'll never, ever receive anything from God by fearing. Fear has torment. But you know what I have found out? Perfect love casteth out fear. And God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of love and a power and of a sound mind. That we can take control of our minds and that we have a sound mind and when we have the right relationship with him, perfect love, love relationship, cast it out fear because you begin to trust in the one that you have the relationship with and it casteth out fear. But he says, oh, why do you have no faith? Why is it that you're so fearful? Now, Jesus answers and says, not only are you fearful, but you have little faith. And there was times that he even said, you have no faith in Scripture. We're not going to bear all that out. But it was clear and evident that Jesus admired this man, this Gentile, this centurion's faith. Though he was a Gentile, his kind of faith was a rare thing seen in Israel. And I thought to myself, is Jesus sighing or is he marveling at my faith? Is he looking down at the pastor and praying and saying, wow! Or is he saying, oh, I'm so tired of this. I'm so tired of messing with this. Is he grieving? Is he tired? Is he weary of us over the faith that we really exhibit? It's one thing to say things with our words. It's another thing to show it by our actions. Amen? Our church as a whole in America is very weak. It's blown away by every wind of doctrine. Every time something bad happens, people fall apart. And what is bad to them is, cannot even be considered even close to what the disciples or the apostles went through. And yet we are finding ourselves walking with a very limited amount of power in this 21st century when we're coming to the close where Jesus said at the end time in chapter 24 that if I did not shorten the days, the very elect would be destroyed. The perilous times, Paul says, is coming Therefore, we need more faith than we've ever had, but it seems that we have less of it. Hello? It seems like they're weak and we're beggarly. It seems like that we're sitting out here starving as children of God, not having any kind of spiritual authority or power in our lives, but we fall apart by every little thing that comes along. Help me preach. Oh, God, help us. This man had more faith than the multitude that just come off of the mount. Now listen to Jesus' words, which is kind of odd. Right after he brags and recognizes this man's faith, listen to what he says in verse 11 and 12. It blows me away. 
A matter of fact, you're going to look at it and you probably won't even understand it and you think, what is that even saying? But he says, I say unto you, now listen, he looks and he says, I've not found so great a faith in all of Israel. And then the next words out of his mouth, watch how odd they are. And I say unto you that many shall come from the east and the west shut down with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. Look at verse 12. But the children of the kingdom shall be cast out into outer darkness. There shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Why would he say this right in the middle of him talking about this man's faith? What was he trying to actually get across to us? What was the purpose to say such a negative thing right in the middle of a positive event? Most speechwriters would have called this ununiform and not consistent or remaining the same in the train of thought. They would have said he's rambling. They would have said his remarks were unsuitable and very unnecessary. They would have thought his remarks were not appropriate or offensive. His remarks seem to be out of character and simply not needed. And matter of fact, that's where the church world is at today. As long as you speak positive, uplifting, encouraging, edifying, faith-building messages, everybody's on board. But the first time you say something a little bit negative, why'd you say that? You're going to run people off. We're living in a fancy-free world where everybody's feelings are on their shoulders and everything's so political correct. You've got to watch every little word you say. You've got to die every I. You've got to cross every T. You've got to walk such a straight line that if you, you're just afraid to say anything at all off of, the, off of that straight line because people are going to get offended. Well, I want to tell you something. They might as well get offended because that's not the way we're to live. Is that the only applause I'm going to get for that statement? Dear God, we're living in a weird, sick world. Everything now is racist, sexist. It don't matter what you say, that's racist. That's sexist. You're a bigot. You're, 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 you're judgmental. God, if Jesus was on the earth, oh my goodness, what do you think they would say about him? Right in the middle of this, he begins to deal with some serious issues in the life of those guys that come off of that mountain with him. As a matter of fact, Jesus knew exactly what he was doing and he knew exactly what he wanted to say. He did not misspeak, nor was he just rambling. He had a divine purpose to what he was saying, folks. Are you with me? I would not be worth anything to you as a pastor if I didn't bring some instruction and correction in the word of God from time to time. I would not be worth my, my, the powder to blow my brains out. Everybody say, oh, don't say that in today's world. It's nuts. You can't even use an illustration. Oh, he's suicidal now. Can I have an amen? But I want to tell you something. If I just got up here Sunday after Sunday and just lifted you and loved you and, and just was, a, you know, a, a good motivational speaker and I knew how, oh, yeah, we could get a crowd. We get a crowd and half of them go to hell because they've never been corrected by the word of God. Can I have an amen? We have to understand what Jesus is saying here. The first thing we have to recognize, who was Jesus saying this to? Who is he talking to? Verse 10 tells us who he was talking to. And when Jesus heard this man about his faith, he marveled and he said to them that followed him. Who's he talking to? These remarks were made to the crowd that followed him off of the mount seen the leper cleansed, all the way followed him to Capernaum. They're not leaving him. This is the elite crowd. Can I have an amen? He told them not every single one of them had the kind of faith that this centurion had. 
He said, when I look out over this multitude, though you sat with me, though you were with me all day long, he said, I want you to know not one of you in Israel, not one of you among me has the faith that this centurion man has. How many of us would have that kind of faith that this centurion had? Not in a single instance did he imply that he found the degree of faith in them that he's seen within this Gentile. The centurion was not of Israel. He was a Gentile, and yet Jesus gave him a higher testimony even though he did not have the divine privilege to have intercourse and communication that the Jewish people had all day long upon that mountain. This man did not have the opportunity to hang around with Jesus. He didn't have time to sit in the crowds and be taught and discipled. And all. He didn't have that privilege, and yet he had more faith than those that did get to have that privilege. Too much is given, much is required, folks. Can I have an Amen. When it should have been the elect, when it should have been Israel that had such faith, yet it was a Gentile that actually exercised it. Notice that. It is here that Jesus was trying to set up the kingdom of God within Israel. He came for that very purpose. And yet he makes a prophecy that did not fit the description of the Jewish covenant of Abraham. Seemed to be contrary to it. It seemed to actually take its place to a certain degree, which it didn't, does for a while, but the Abrahamic covenant is an everlasting covenant. It will come back. But he says in verse 11, and I say unto you that many shall come from the east and the west and shall sit down with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. That is the positive. He's saying something positive here. He's saying, I want you to know that there's gonna be people from the east to the west, north to the south that's gonna flood in and they're gonna sit down with Abraham and, and, and Isaac and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. Isn't that an exciting thing? You know what he's speaking of? Revival. How many believe revival's coming? You're quiet on me today. Here he was speaking of the Gentiles coming into the kingdom of God, which was a direct insult and a slap in the Jewish faith. Matter of fact, they called themselves, the Jews did, the elect, the children of Abraham, and they looked at themselves as God's special favorite people. They thought that they only were the children of God and the children of promise and that the Gentiles was excluded from the kingdom. That's what they thought. They looked at Abraham's covenant only to include them and it excluded the Gentiles who were considered pagans. Amen. But Jesus here was prophesying about a church that's going to become in the future and it's going to be made up of Gentiles and not Jews and they're going to be birthed in the kingdom of God. In other words, he's looking at the Jews and saying, hey, you're blowing it. And he's looking at them and saying, when it should have been you that had such faith, you don't have it, but don't worry about it. I'll find faith on the earth even if I have to reach the pagans. If I have to reach the Gentiles, and the Gentiles from the east and the west are gonna pour in. And by thousands, they're gonna give their life to Christ. And even though they were Gentiles among that crowd that day, Yet the crowd was made up of a strong presence of Jewish descent that was all around Jerusalem, it says, and all around in Jerusalem area. He was telling the Gentiles there was hope for them, but he was warning the Jews the danger of them being lost. Did you hear that? He says thousands upon thousands are gonna come from the east and the west, are gonna pour into the kingdom of God. They're gonna be sitting down with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And yet... The children of the kingdom, talking about Israel, shall be cast down into outer darkness and there shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. That's scary, isn't it? 
This speaks of Israel's rejection due to their unbelief. He came to his own Jewish people and yet John chapter one verse 11 says, he came into his own, his own Jewish people, but his own received him not. Though they were the elect, the chosen remnant, the ones that were called to perpetuate the gospel of the kingdom around the world, yet they were cut off due to their unbelief. Did you hear that? They were the very children of the kingdom and the kingdom was properly theirs. It belonged to them. It belonged to the Jewish people, the special favored, the chosen, the called. But now they would be cast off and another one would come in and take their place and fulfill their role in the earth, which would be the church of Jesus Christ that was going to be made up of Gentiles. You and I literally now have the mandate upon us that Israel had upon them. Hello? Are you listening? Notice that the Jews thought Jesus was the Messiah only to the nation of Israel. But they failed to see that he came to be the Messiah to the world. They failed to see that they were to be used to spread the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that the gospel wasn't just about them, that they would be the holy priesthood of God that would perpetuate the gospel to the four corners of the earth. This is why that Paul said in Romans 10, 11, for the scripture saith, whosoever believeth on him shall not be ashamed. Did you hear that? Whosoever shall believe in him shall not be ashamed. For there's no difference between the Jew or the Greek or the Gentile for the same Lord over all is rich and all that call upon his name. In other words, it won't just be Israel that'll be saved. It'll also be the Gentiles. There are religions today that say that they're the only church that's going to heaven. If you don't join the church or baptize in their church, you're doomed for hell. Boy, are they going to be surprised when they get up there and I'm there. Amen? The nation of Israel thought, oh, we're the special, the favorite. Anytime there is something there upon you that is special, it's because you have a special task. It's not because you're special within yourself. It is what is special is what God's entrusted to you. And the thing that we got to understand, the church of Jesus Christ is the body of Christ. It is the highly favored thing. It is, what, it is the vehicle, it's the tool that God uses to spread the gospel around the world. We are highly favored, we're chosen, we're children of God, but it's not that we're so special, but it is the mandate given to us that is special. Amen? He entrusted us with it as Gentiles. Listen to what Romans 1 and 16 says. For I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believes. Everyone that believes. To the Jew first and also to the Greek and to the Gentile. In other words, it came to the Jewish people first so that the Jewish people could spread it to other people, but they failed to do so. But now it's to every whosoever will. Notice the next verse of the scripture in verse 17. He says, for, this, for therein is righteousness of God revealed from faith to faith as written, the just shall live by faith. What does that mean? The gospel is to be spread by faith of people to where others can receive that same faith. And herein is righteousness revealed. Righteousness is revealed with faith in action. Righteousness is revealed when people put their faith to work. How's righteousness gonna be revealed to the world when the palace of praise puts their faith in motion? when they see Jesus Christ manifested through us. Amen? When they see the works of God that was carried out in Jesus' life, carried out in the church. Greater works than these shall you do because I go to my Father. Was not the works that Jesus done the thing that confirmed his identity? If you can't believe me, believe for my very work's sake. The church cannot even say that if you can't. And, and what we are to be able to say, if you don't believe in us as a church, believe for our very work's sake. Look at the miracles, look at the signs, look at the conversions that's being done. Can I have an amen? I'm ready to see it. 
I'm not saying that anymore in the past tense. I am seeing it. I said I'm seeing it. In the name of Jesus, I'm seeing it right now. It's manifestation time. Are you ready, palace of praise? Amen. But here's our challenge. James 1, uh, 2 and 17 says, faith without works is dead, being alone. Matter of fact, James 2, 18 says, show me your faith without your works and I'll show you my faith by my works. In other words, if you say you have faith, let's see it in action. Let's see you doing something. Do we not owe it all to him? Is your life not to be owed to the cause of the kingdom more than your own kingdom? Is he not to be the priority of your life and not third and fourth and fifth priority? Is he Lord? Somebody help me here. This is the challenge that God is speaking to the palace because he's entrusted this palace to be a remnant church to where he is priority and that we become the chosen people to carry out the mandate of the last day. Oh, hallelujah. He's entrusting us, Randy, for the assignment. He's not just tickling our fancies. He's not just thrilling us entertaining us for the sake of just entertaining us and blessing us. He is entertaining us, blessing us, encouraging us, all of those kinds of things for one reason, that we might be able to be edified to the point of pushing forward his program and doing his agenda. Can I have an amen? Now watch this. The very Gentiles that thought was, they thought was excluded from the kingdom Yet it was the Jewish people that was going to be excluded due to their neglect and disobedience caused by their unbelief. Look at Hebrews 4 and 2. For unto us was the gospel preached, as well unto them, but the word preached to them did not profit them, not being mixed with faith in them that heard it. In other words, the Jew and the Gentile sat side by side. They had the both word, the same word preached to them, but one did not profit Israel because it wasn't mixed with faith. But it profited the Gentiles because it was mixed with faith. Hallelujah. Now, the word that I preach to you, how many of you are going to profit from you from it, or how many of you are going to be excluded from it because of faith? It's all about faith, isn't it not? Paul said this about Israel in Romans 11, 20 and 21. God did not spare the natural branches, talking about the Jews, but they were broken off. They were cut off. Israel was the natural branch. He also tells us why they were broken off in verse 20. Well, because of unbelief they were broken off. Thou remainest and you stand by faith, what he says to the Gentiles. He said, but don't you become high-minded, but you better fear. Did you hear that? Not the fear of the world, but the fear of reverence of God. He said, all right, the natural branch has been broken off, but you have been grafted in, you have been lifted, and you stand by faith, but don't become high-minded. But you better fear with trembling. Come on. Now he's talking to the Gentile there. Notice how was their faith to be manifested? Israel's. By spreading and perpetuating the message of the kingdom. But the unbelief was revealed by them thinking salvation was for them and them alone. They were unwilling to spread the message. How many churches set every single Sunday and they're saved and they worship the God of their salvation, but they never ever share their faith to anybody. Less than 25% of born again Christians share their faith. 
So when Jesus comes and looks at the Gentiles today, have we not turned like the, like the Jewish people and the Pharisees and Sadducees? Are we not in the same boat that they were in when Jesus was speaking to them that day off the Sermon of the Mount in Capernaum? Less than 25% of the body of Christ is engaged or has a desire to see anybody saved, but their salvation is only for themselves saying, I'm going to go to heaven. That's all that matters. That's exactly where Israel was at. Can I have an amen? Israel was unwilling to spread the message. They heaped their salvation upon themselves and it caused them to be disqualified and rejected. The privilege became the disqualified the favor become the rejected. Isn't that sad? Having all this divine opportunity and squandering it. Having divine privilege, but not running with it. Having opportunity, but losing it. How many of you ever had opportunity to do something and you look back and say, oh, I wish I'd done that? Amen? Well, this is an opportunity that you can't regret losing. This is life or death, heaven or hell. Are you listening to me? Wow, it's getting quiet in here. Because we're seeing that we're no better than the Jew were a lot of times. Jesus said in John 15 and 2, every branch of me that beareth not fruit is taken away. As Jesus would come down and say, I'm going to do a fruit inspection upon the church today. And he'd come up to our lives. He'd say, uh-oh, there's no fruit. Guess what? Boom, that branch is gone. That's a scary thought. How many of us today, if God was going to scrutinize us and come down and look for fruit. How many of us would have fruit? If we have no fruit, guess what? He's gonna cut the branch off and throw it away. You're a branch. He's the vine. You're connected to the vine. But if the vine that you're connected to is not bearing forth fruit, he looks at you as something, nothing but a sucker that sucks energy and sucks life out of the vine but bears no fruit in his place. Therefore, you're of no value and he cuts you off so that he can put more life into others. And he says, I'm going to look and I'm going to scrutinize the church and every branch that bears not forth fruit, I'm going to throw it away. John 15 and 6, he says, if any man abide not in me, he's cast forth as a branch and withered. Men gather him up and cast him in the fire to be burned. Isn't that what he said about Israel? But the children of the kingdom shall be cast out in outer darkness where there's a gnashing of teeth. Listen to what he says in Matthew 7, 18 through 21. Every tree that bringeth not forth good fruit is hewed down and cast into the fire. Wherefore, by their fruits shall you know them. Not everyone that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven, but he that doeth the will of my Father which is in heaven. Them's the ones that's going to go to heaven, the ones that does the will of God. Why is it? Are we judged by works? No, we're judged by faith, but faith has works, and a lack of works is a sure sign we have no faith. Did you hear me? Works are important because they're a manifestation of what we believe. If you thought there was a new truck out in the parking lot out there waiting for the first person to run out and put their fingers on it, I'd have an empty crowd right now because you'd have faith. I'm going to get me a new truck if I place my hand on it. If you thought that you had the number one uh, key to winning the lottery, you'd begin to put, invest in tickets in order to be able to win the billion dollars is given away not too long ago. That's But... When it comes to the principles of God, how many of us is dedicated and giving our lives, selling ourselves out, making him Lord, making him priority and saying, I will be a man of fruit that produces to good works to where there'll be a harvest. Oh my goodness. 
We're coming down to the consummation of the church to where Jesus is about to come and get his bride and there's going to be this last day thrust for a harvest. Are we going to be those that's going to be a participant of the harvest or are we going to squander it and lose it? The Jewish people failed to exercise faith and the just shall live by faith and faith will be manifested in works. They failed to believe on Jesus Christ to spread the gospel to the four corners of the earth to be the nation of priests. And this is what happened at the very beginning of the church. The Jewish people were broken off and the Gentile church raised up in the book of Acts. The Gentiles were grafted in and Israel was cut off. Now what concerns me is this. I felt like the Lord began to deal with me. And he said, the warning that I gave to the apostle Paul about the natural branches being cut off. But then he goes on, but fear, because if he cut off not the natural, if he cut off the natural branches, beware, unless he cut you off too. At the end, is history going to repeat itself in the church world? Is it possible those of us that have been saved for years fall short and be cut off from the promises of God due to our neglect, due to our disobedience that's caused by unbelief? Are we going to be like Israel? Thousands upon thousands from the east to west, north and the west are going to come in only for us to be lost and cut off? It was Paul that said in 1 Timothy 4 1, a prophecy about the church. He says, now, the Spirit speaketh expressly in the latter times, some's going to depart from the faith. Matter of fact, Matthew 24, speaking of the last day church, says, and because iniquity shall abound, the love of many is going to wax cold. Matter of fact, Jesus in Matthew 24 says, unless I shorten the days, the very elect, the very church is going to be literally lost. And then listen to what he says in Hebrews 4, verse 1 through 3. Let us therefore fear, lest a promise being left us of entering into his rest, if any of you should come short of it. For unto us the gospel was preached. Unto us the gospel. Don't fall short of the promises. And listen to what he says, verse three of that same chapter lets us know that even though his rest was promised before the foundation of the world, it's his desire, it's his will to give us rest, to enter in his rest in heaven, yet we can come short of receiving that promise due to our unbelief. And the outcome will be the same with that of Israel. The children of the kingdom shall be cast out into outer darkness. And there shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. But they will not stop, that will not stop Christ from having an end time revival. Thousands are going to come from the east, the west, the north, and the south and give, be converted. But the children of promise could be lost, but the pagans saved. The children favored, the children of favor rejected, but the heathen accepted. The children and the chosen, the children of God and the chosen uh, disqualified, but the sinner justified. We cannot allow that to what happened to Israel to happen to us, folks. Listen to Paul's warning in Romans eleven twenty one again. For if God spare not the natural branches, take heed lest he also not spare you. We must cultivate our faith. Are you with me this morning? I'm about to close. I'm not going to do Jesus' sermon on the mountain, keep you here till five o'clock tonight. We must build up our faith. How? Romans ten seventeen. Faith cometh by hearing and hearing by the word of God. People come up for something of crisis in their lives. You can't just jump off of a pew and come up here and try to muster up your faith. If you've not been in the word, you're not going to have faith. Jude verse 20 says, building up your most holy faith by praying in the Holy Spirit. If you're not a man of prayer, if you're not a man of devotion, if you're not a man that seeks the face of the Lord on a regular basis, don't ever expect to exercise faith. It ain't going to happen. You're not going to have it. Can I have an amen? But you let a man get in a prayer closet somewhere. You let him pray. You let him have that fervent relationship with Christ. 
You let him get in the word of God and just start reading and studying and dissecting the scripture. Then all of a sudden when he walks out of that place, he's going to be like a centurion. He's going to have faith. Whatever you say, that's what's going to be done. Just speak the word and it's going to happen. Amen? He's going to have faith. The same mandate given to Israel, guess what? It's given to us. How many knows that you are to give a reason for the hope that lieth within you according to 1 Peter 3.15? Every one of you are to be able, you know what really is discouraging to a pastor that somebody can be in the church for 20 years and they'll bring people up to you and say, pastor, they need to be saved. I'm thinking, well, man, pray them through. What, what are you bringing them to me for? My goodness, you're a 20-year vet and you don't even know how to pray someone through to salvation? Hello? Pastor, my neighbor, they're lost. Could you go by and see them? You go by and see them. I don't mind doing it, but where's the active body of Christ? We don't do those things because we're not operating in faith. Why, wow, all power is given to me in heaven and earth. Go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Ghost, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I've commanded you. And lo, I'll be with you always, even to the end of the world. That's the great commission. You know who he's going to be with? Those that fulfill the great commission. Then lo, I'll be with you always. Amen? Where is our faith operating at? What level are we? Are we are grieving the master or are we literally giving him a wow? He's astonished. He's marveling at what we're doing. We're to work out our own salvation with fear and trembling. What does that mean? There's only one way of salvation. It isn't saying figure yourself what plan that you want to accept and that be your salvation. He said the salvation that's in you, work it out with fear and trembling. Work it out of your life. Teach it, preach it, testify, speak it, live it. Would you stand with me this morning? In 30 years of pastoring, I've seen a trend throughout America in the, in the church of God, in the assemblies of God, in the Baptist churches. I've seen it in all churches. I've seen it even in this very own town where there were churches that had mandates on them a calling, a commission of God. And they were in their first youthful stage. They were excited and they were firebrands. Miracles were happening in their midst. Multitudes were in the church. And everybody would say, man, that church down there is on fire. Go visit so-and-so church. Only for 20 years later for that church to be now seating a capacity of 600 only to have 40 or 50 people sitting in it. What happened? On the flip side of the coin, I know what it's like to go to a church that had just a handful of people. A membership of about 15, a regular attendance of about seven, and look at it today. Why? Because something's happening amongst us. In those earlier years, we would see regular conversions on a regular, and we're seeing them now. You just don't recognize them as much because of the crowd. They get blended in the crowd. But I want to tell you something. Ten years from now, I don't want someone to look down and say, right now, we're getting this reputation around town. You need to, jo- you need to go check the palace out. Amen for that. Give the Lord praise for that. <laughs> they got it going on down there. You know, no, we can get ridiculed by others, and that's all right. But listen to me. We've, we've earned a respect. We've earned a certain amount of influence over our community. And when they come in, they expect more out of us than they do anybody else. But what would happen for us if we're not careful to run wild for 30 years 
Only from 10 years from now, somebody say, man down there at the palace, they just got a handful on that big old church. They're just barely hanging on. They're selling assets to pay bills. You know, if that happens, you know why that happens? It's because we squandered opportunity. It's because we let kingdom slip right through our hands. And it's because that God gave us a mandate and he bared with us and he grieved with us and he sighed over us and he was long-suffering and he was gentle and he was kind to finally, he says, oh. And he'll look over here in a place that's disrespected, a ninth and cedar, where there's weeds over your head and there's car bodies and car motors all over the property and there's an old two-story house standing beside it about to fall down and there's trash all over the yard and the building is almost completely gone and it's gutted and there's nothing in it, no restrooms and the carpet is 60 years old and, and the lights are falling through the ceiling and the ceiling is collapsing and it's dirty and it's filthy God says, but that's a pagan looking place. I'll just raise up a Gentile to do my cause. I'll reject a palace and go to a junkyard if I have to to raise up a remnant that will fulfill the mandate that's upon it. Though God has blessed us, don't be high-minded and think we have it all together. Because I don't want him to say, man, there's a Gentile across town that's got more faith than all of the people at the palace. I don't want God to say, I chose you. You're highly favored. You had divine privilege. You've sat, you've heard me, you've been with me for 30 years. I don't want him to say, but you have not learned. I don't want him to say, Kent, thousands are gonna come from the east and the west to come into the kingdom of God, sit down with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, but the children of the kingdom, but the children of the kingdom, they're gonna be cast out into outer darkness and there shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. There's gonna be a rejection because they squandered divine privilege because of unbelief. You're not saved by your works, but your works is a sure sign of your salvation. I'd just like for you this morning just to right where you're at, close your eyes and meditate. Am I astonishing Jesus with my faith? Is he marveling at me? Is he saying, wow, good job, son. Wow, way to go, daughter. Or is he, oh, I'm so tired of dealing with that. Ups and downs, ins and out, wishy-washy, double-mindedness. Don't think that a double-minded man shall receive anything from the Lord because he's unstable in all of his ways. Where are we at? Are we like Israel? This is a hard message this morning. I didn't mean for it to be so hard, but the Lord just would not allow me not to preach it. I tried, I discarded it, I don't know how many times this week. And the Lord said, are you gonna obey me or not? I got a reason for this, because I believe that God is about to stir and spark this church to flow into the, out in the streets and the highways and the byways and we're going to start compelling people to come to Jesus. And we're going to get an element of faith where people automatically just come because of the drawing movement of faith. This morning, I just want you to examine yourself. I want you to take these thoughts home with you today. 
and I want you to make you an altar, and I want you to pray this thing through. You can come this morning. This altar is open. I'm not saying it's not, but this is between you and the Lord, and this thing is very serious. I want to run well. I want to finish in faith. I don't want the rest of his promise to escape from me. I don't want to miss it over my own neglect and my own disobedience that's revealed in unbelief. I want to believe him. Don't you? Father, right now, in the mighty name of Jesus,